0: Well, thank you, Joy, ever so much for agreeing to do this second of the two part series uh, of interviews that we have with you. And um, for anybody listening, if you haven't listened to the first part of those interviews, I would really encourage you to do so because it was fascinating. I had the joy of listening back to it earlier and it was just really interesting to listen again to you talk about that Grand Vegetable Tour and the seismic impact it had upon your return and this time the the idea really joy is to just talk about um gardening more generally so yes thank you thank you ever so much for for doing this again and the first thing i, I was going to ask you joy i mean we've experienced extraordinary weather recently extraordinarily cold in norfolk and i'm sure it has been uh with yourself in ireland too um and i just wanted wanted to ask, um, in terms of, of weather and weather patterns that we've experienced recently and also in the last few years as, as climate change has really gripped our British Isles, um, how has this changed how you think about growing fruits and vegetables? And what personally um, do you do differently? Or might you advise that people do differently in a changing climate
1: well it's an interesting question. I mean down here, I must say there's no um, discernible pattern to what's happening, so I feel the main thing is that we just have to be alert the whole time to any any changes that that are happening and, and try and react as quickly as as possible i mean in the in the last few years, I suppose um, what I've noticed most is perhaps increasing pest pests and, and new pests coming in. We thought we had a new slug, but we came to the conclusion it was just hatching out very much earlier and causing damage that, that I could hardly, hatching very early the little slugs and I, I wasn't seeing them. But I, I myself had, and a, a lot of what I say is geared to actually being now a very old gardener, so you just have to curtail and limit your what you do for that reason. But I have stopped growing things like aubergine because now so much of my growing is concentrated in my greenhouse, which we bought, built onto this house because I can still get to it easily, whereas the garden is sloping and hard for me to walk around now. But I'm getting so much worse, red spider mite damage. And um, I've just given up growing aubergines completely. And this year, I, um I... I, I went to the expense of getting the, the predators. All these things are harder in Ireland because they have to come from the UK and putting in the predator early and twice to get any cucumbers at all. And um, and amazingly, it also meant I've had an amazing crop of, of morning glory later in the year because I hadn't realized red spider was killing that off. And also the little tragedies, the French marigolds I grow partly is to help control aphids. And, um, and the red spider might have been killing them off, so I've got unusual things flourishing just through being less mean about getting in the 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 um the predator so um I suppose that's my main um adaptation to um to global warming so far I just have to see what it brings
0: well, I think it's really interesting because I initially was thinking more about flowers or vegetables and plants and you've gone straight for the idea of pests which of course you know it's uh, living creatures that will also adapt very quickly to to our environment that's that's pretty interesting.
2: And actually to to go slightly sideways on that Joy and I'm only I'm a few years behind you but certainly feeling slower these days I was really interested what you say about adapting not just in terms of climate uh, and and I think that's a that's the most kind of interesting comment I've heard about climate change. Lots of gardeners talking about what should we grow next year? How do we anticipate? And I think being alert is is perhaps the most useful thing that can, that I've heard said. Because of course, we can we can plan for a drier summer or, a, but we just don't know, do we? It's completely unpredictable the situation. So I think that's. Uh, and being being alert and perhaps what I've tried to do is to spread my bets so rather than thinking I'll oh, just do things which you know um, do well in dry conditions or don't need too much watering but also to to put in things which which um can take a lot of rain and uh, and it, uh, kind of spreading my bets in that way yeah um but I was also very interested in you touched on uh, and, and I'm and I'm sympathetic to having a rather sore back after a lot of digging the um the adaptions that you make uh, to being an older gardener? I mean, not just in the planting, but uh, are you finding that's more in, in the greenhouse, for example?
1: Oh, just everywhere. In fact, if if anyone didn't lose energy with age, I'd write a book on, on old age gardening. Um, you just need, to, I mean, all around the garden, I've got posts which I call just joy posts because you need something to lean on. Um, i was trying to train the tomatoes i was stopping them much earlier so i could reach them cuz um i mean i don't know whether you're a tall man or a short man but i i i pray for tall people to come in and reach all the things i can't reach and of course you can't reach the low things either so you're um you're you're you're, you're planning everything so it sits within reach and uh, and the, yeah there are all sorts of little tricks that you can get up to so that you can still continue gardening and keep with. I mean now I can't get down on my knees so um, I have to be, well I had, I've gone in for raised beds in a big way but all, all these, there are all sorts of little things you can do that, that enable you just to keep going a, a little bit, a little bit longer. <laughs> yes,
2: yes, yes. Um, and the, um, my mother who is 94 and lives in New Zealand um, has absolutely gone in for beds that are that are waist level not just raised and so see, she she can sit in a chair and garden and uh yes and I'm not a tall man <laughs> I'm not a tall man <laughs> so, <yeah.
1: laughs> well I do have stools all around the garden now which have to be upside down um so that they don't get too wet in case I go out after dew or, or, or rain um, so that I can do various things you know from a stool and then you have to have, you have to, you, your stools have to be higher and higher, <laughs> because you, <laughs> you get less and less able to get down. And also you need a little rail on the top so you can pressurize to get yourself
2: oh, pull, you know, pull yourself up. Know. There's a lot
1: of adaptation goes on. And the great victory is when you discover a way to do something that you hadn't thought of before. You know.
2: <laughs> yeah absolutely but I think that you know the, the joy of gardening just doesn't go undimmed un- I think my pleasure gets deeper and deeper every year I, yes I would, I, it
1: does yeah yeah
2: but going go, go, going back I mean you've talked about what you're growing now just in terms of of um just the pleasure the pleasure of gardening uh, what, what gives you a lot of pleasure in, in in terms of what you like to to grow these days
1: well well mainly what I concentrate because you do have to start concentrating and I suppose I concentrate on things that um uh you can't get easily and 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 the things with the flavor that I really like you know so my my biggest thing is um uh, um tomatoes you know I I do still grow tomatoes and and uh, and sweet peas I've always grown so tomatoes and sweet peas are my two big crops and uh they're my huge bribes and thank yous to everybody who helps me along from you know, the, the postman to neighbours. They, they all get little bunches of sweet peas or 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 tomatoes. Um,
2: uh, it's. If- it's lovely to be able to do that isn't it I I grow a lot of surplus just because I I love giving it away and I love I love the pleasure it gives me I love I always watch their faces and 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 the smile is always just uh, fantastic when you the surprise. yeah yeah and it, it's fascinating to hear you say that Joy, because I I've been reading uh, your your fantastic book just vegetating and I, and I particularly enjoyed the chapter, uh, the section on tomatoes where you talk about how you were going to try and limit it and and be very thorough in your testing of what was going to do well. And you ended up, I think, growing 19. <laughs> different Yeah, varieties. well,
1: now because I've only got space for 12 plants. And so I'm trying to boil it down to I think I had seven varieties last year, which, which causes problems in itself because I do like to have at least two of each. But um yes yeah it's a you get more and more limited in what in what you grow yeah
2: <laughs> yes but that that was just such a wonderful chapter I I I actually reread it oh. several, several times. <laughs> not not just I mean partly because the, the well every chapter in that book has such a, a a kind of fantastic knowledge um but just the 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 sense that you talk um. Uh, about gardening just always pulls me up short so in that chapter you write about how you know in terms of trying to test the uh, and record the flavor of tomatoes being so receptive to the nuances of growing like earlier in the season they might do well or things on the lower trusses I think you're talking about the beefsteak or the mamand and later in the, the season the flavor's falling off so just a really interesting reminder that you can't think right well I'll grow I'll grow these for flavour because it's so much more nuanced. Well, it, than that.
1: it is, and what I've just only realised recently is that I did have COVID, not at all seriously, but I realised just from remarks from friends and and so on that in fact I I have lost quite a lot of sense of taste with that. I mean, I know, I know it goes. We mustn't mention old age too often, but 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 losing that f- uh, sense of taste does, I think, go with it a bit, but but also um. You know, lately I've realised that um, it may have gone with regard to some of the vegetables as well. Let's hope it comes back. You know.
2: Mm, yeah. mm, well, I'm I'm so sorry to hear that, and I hope it does come back. If it's any consolation, I have I had COVID quite badly over a year ago, and it was. Probably one of the most uh certainly for someone who loves food and loves ve- growing vegetables because of the flavor, it was really upsetting to lose sense of taste and smell i was I was smelling everything in the house that had a strong smell garlic lemon, uh coffee I couldn't smell anything and and weirdly I was very susceptible to um chili I couldn't even the tiniest bit of chili I burnt like anything. But if it's uh, it's all slowly come back, but it has taken eight or nine months to a year.
1: Yeah, chilies and peppers are another of the crops that I always grow. I mean, you can get them. You know, compared to Ireland a few years ago, it's amazing what I can get just you know three miles away. But I still love to grow my own peppers and and chilies, especially Hungarian wax chili. I think that's got a lovely subtle, gentle flavour, and so it's my my. The frost has got them recently. I should have whipped them out of the greenhouse the day sooner, but um, my, my kitchen table is a mass of red chilies at the moment. Which actually, is, as, as a sideline, two years ago the mice were getting in. Yes, they do at this time of year. And um, and I thought, good heavens, somebody's been eating that chili overnight. And we discovered that mice were very. Um, Chili setting traps with chilies was very good for catching mice. I uh, wondered how a West Cork mouse had acquired the flavor from chili. <laughs> <laughs> how
2: extraordinary! Okay. But
1: somebody told me that they, they actually, uh, I've forgotten what no, I what I was told, but there's a good reason for them. They just don't notice it's chili, I think.
2: <laughs> right, right. Wow. I've always tried peanut butter works very well in a mouse trap. Yes, but, yeah, I um, think
1: it does. Yeah,
2: yeah, yeah. Yeah, That is extraordinary. The chilies always look so pretty on the plants, and I, I have them growing indoors just because they're so. I think they're. I'd rather look at a, a chili plant with, with with chilies on than a than a, um. I don't know a pot pot plant. They always look so sterile by comparison. Yeah, no, they're,
1: they're lovely. Yeah
0: and joy when you're planting the chilies and the tomatoes and the sweet peas do you plant them directly or do you plant them in modules and then more widely would you advise people planting directly or or in modules
1: well i tend to use um i use modules more and more um i think Partly, apart from growing cut and come again seedling crops, um, partly because there, are, um, I just find there are so many things in the soil that you sow things direct. I suppose, especially here where it's fairly warm, again and again seedlings don't appear. Now, whether it's slugs or or whether it's other soil creatures. Or whether it's particularly here where we get a lot of um, very drying winds and very heavy rain, whether it's just the soil surface. <laughs> so the, the rate of loss is pretty high for growing things, um, for sowing direct. Um, so I do I do, do a lot of module sowing. Sweet peas, I, I did my years of practical work before I went to college growing sweet peas and um, uh, with a guy who grew uh, old Mr. Gower who grew sweet peas for Sutton's back back then. And um, I've always grown sweet peas and always done them, sowing them in October or, or November, November. So there's one of the few things coming up in my greenhouse now. And then in, in the old days, they put them in frames over the winter. But I, again, I found that was feeding mice over the winter. So I, I tend to either kind of harden them off by stroking them indoors, or I put them in and out. Mind you, I put them in and out was when I was more agile. Now I can't walk I need sticks to walk. I can't see myself carrying the sweet peas in and out. But um I have to find a solution to that. But they're they're one of the things I I I do always sow in modules and the tomatoes.
0: They're the seed and the plant that keeps giving, aren't they, sweet peas? They're just fantastic. And they're so universal. You can use them with children yeah. and you can use them as climbers, you can uh, use them for it's the their scents They're just absolutely fantastic, and and I personally have have a great love for them because my granny, like yourself, used to plant them in 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 autumn in November, and I remember doing that with her. And she used to grow them up the side of her her garage. And every time you walk past, you get this this beautiful scent. But they are they are magnificent, aren't they? They're very easy to, easy to grow. Um, sometimes the simplest plants are are the best ones. Do you have a particular variety, which you uh, you recommend
1: well my uh, my, fav- my favorite I think my all time favorite is that the original one, cupani or Machucana, the one that came from sicily and i've actually i 've written into my will that if, if there 's anyone around who comes to my funeral, I want them all to be given a packet of of seeds of the machucana or, or cupani there 's actually a modern one called Amelia Fox which which is a, a very good lookalike and a very good grower. Um, it's quite hard to get the seeds over here at the moment, but it's um, it's a lovely, I mean, they're the kind of purpley colours, which I always like, but, but, but a lovely scent. I think the Matricana is still the one, the original one that they use as the standard when they're comparing the scent of any sweet peas, but it's an old one and and... And you know, still quite a small flower, but it's. I think that's my favourite. But I have, I've got quite a few favourites.
0: You could probably see Peter and I scribbling down <laughs> these, these notes. <laughs> We're a bit late to plant them in now, Peter. We could put them in in spring, couldn't we?
1: <laughs> what I'll do is I'll, I'll get you to. Um, Find some Amelia Fox for me in the UK and, and post it over just in a little a little brown envelope because it's um Happily. it's that's a, another question but it's become so hard getting seed over here. Oh, it'd be, it'd be, a, um, it'd be a
0: pleasure to do that for
1: me, Joy. It really would be.
2: And just 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 following on from that, Joy, in terms of uh, favourite sweet peas, I meant to ask you about the tomatoes just to to backtrack a little bit. You know what what are your favourite tomatoes? What are you growing now? Or, or what do you like to grow?
1: Well, basically, um, I would say my favourites from last year, I think of, of a modern to modern, I, I have to go for blight-free ones, mm. um, ones with good resistance to blight. Um, it's impossible growing outdoors yeah. here. Blight is a horrendous problem here. Um, of the of the modern ones, I think, is it, I never know whether it's Mountain Magic or Magic Mountain, a little one. I think it's a very good one. Ah, right. um, I still grow, I, my daughter sends me some of the French varieties and I, I find any of the ox heart varieties, I mean, they're not very prolific, but they're, um, they do have such a good rate. I mean, they're very variable in what you get, but they also also are fleshy ones. I, I tend to like the fleshy tomatoes rather than the little round red ones. Um, the Fur, Furlin is another good performer. It was one of the first... Um, ones with good blight resistance and and a good flavor. And then some of the um the old French marmons, um, not even so much the modern ones, but the older ones that are still kind of ridgy and ugly. Um I think they're very good. And the other one I always grow is um San Martano, it's a very solid one. And I actually just bung them straight in the freezer and um. It's the kind of Roma type, but uh, but far and away the best in my experience, anyway. So, so um, yeah, and and the other favourite I I always try and grow my own is the, um, the sweet corn, just to grow the, um, uh, the, the super sweet varieties in my greenhouse and and outside.
2: Yes, yes. Well, it, it's so interesting to hear you talk about blight and blight resistant varieties. The uh, I was determined. With a, you know, pride comes before a fall, doesn't it? Because there there is blight on on our allotment plot, and a number of people have just given up growing tomatoes. And my neighbour always swears by Crimson Crush as a as a blight resistant variety, and I and I tasted them, and I thought the flavour wasn't great. And I in the polytunnel I put in some climbing cherry vines, and they look they looked staggeringly beautiful. At um, one called jen's cherry tangerine and it looked so pretty and they were right up to the top of the polytunnel and and i did need a step ladder to get them and they were beautiful for about two weeks and then they all got black just like that (laughs) it was devastating and then this year i grew crimson crush and prima bella and because of the summer we had they were staggeringly good so like like you say in in just vegetating there are so many variables but yeah fascinating
0: yeah well you mentioned sweet corn joy do you ever or ever have you ever practiced intercropping and, and would you advise that because that's something that peter and i have spoken about before
1: yes the whole the whole spacing thing one sort of comes and goes in different ways and and the fellow who helps me in the garden i think he he thinks my intercropping is carried to a ludicrous degree but um i, I think with spacing i've always just grown things as close as i possibly can I, I i mainly do and you know spacing can so affect size you know something like cauliflowers if you want little mini cauliflowers and so often you know a cauliflower is too big when you get it but growing them closer you can get just tinier ones and you can control spacing of things like cabbages and stuff you know by how far apart you put them but mainly, I'm intercropping now in in my greenhouse because that's my my nearest and most convenient place. And I, I just actually wrote down my I've got three raised um, two raised beds in in the greenhouse, and I try and um, alternate the tomato and related crops each year and give them fresh soil. But but one of my systems, when the tomatoes are ending, which is um, They're still hanging on in their November, December. I interplant with um, broad beans. I raise a few and interplant them with the the dying tomatoes, because that gives me a very, very early crop of broad beans. And then when the broad beans are... um, Well, you know, they don't like it when it gets too hot. But at that point, I intercrop them in the greenhouse with sweet corn you know, all raised in modules and planted in between. <clears throat> so there's a point where it looks like they're not going to survive under the broad beans, but in fact they do. <clears throat> so I get a lovely crop of indoor sweet corn. And then at the end of the year, sometimes if the sweet, when the sweet corn are dying, <clears throat> died off, then I plant maybe the oriental greens or little winter crops under them. So I've had a whole series of... Um, of intercropping, you know, that, that has worked out. And then on the side and on the stage in the greenhouse, I've got um, fish boxes being by the sea and they float up. And um, <coughs> and then fish, fish boxes, I grow the uh, peppers in summer. But when they're dying off, again, which is happening right now, then I interplant them with kind of winter endives and uh, rockets and things like that. So, so they get um, a little intercrop that's creeping away you know, in their dying days. And, and outdoors now, I suppose my main, my main intercrop is, um, is pumpkins and sweet corn. In, in, one of, in one of the raised beds, I've got about four pumpkins which kind of zigzag across, and I slip the sweet corn plants in between. And they look so sweet coming up between the pumpkins. So that's um, a kind of theatrical bit of uh, intercropping I do outside so that's kind of my main intercropping these these days
2: yeah so um, what would you say are the main advantages of intercropping
1: well just saving space really yeah um and you know if you've only got a limited amount of ground just getting the most out of the ground that you have because that is one of my main um uh occupations really enabling people with small guns to get stuff i'm not sure that any of these things like one deters the pest from another i'm not sure many of them have stood the test of really being trialed out you know like growing onions between i've forgotten what it was to to deter things i I don't it's mainly a space saving thing as far as i'm concerned sure Sure.
2: and do you think it also acts as as in a way to suppress weeds, you've got a, ground, a bit of ground cover. If it's well, pumpkins, yes.
1: provided, yeah. I mean, provided you've got crops that do suppress the weeds, because it's 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 making sure that the weeds don't win. So you end up with nothing or just a muddle. It can it can lead to muddles, but it can also be very satisfying, you know, when you when you see, you know, something coming along and something else is dying off. You know, some things like lettuce you can plant close to sweet pea, to peas and then the peas come down and, and you've got space for the lettuces and some of the brassicas you can plant you know between things like peas and beans and uh, they can be you know going away in the early stages before they need the space
0: i think i mentioned it on a previous episode or when talking to you peter but in the summer i went to france and visited a, an amazing allotment And on first sight it was exactly as you said joy a muddle i thought it was a complete mess um and then on closer inspection i realized there was loads of intercropping and there was a tremendous amount of of mulching going on as well and that is a nice segue into mulching joy because i know that's something you're you're very passionate about and peter is incredibly keen to hear what you have to say on this because next year he is going to be mr mulch mr multivator (laughs) Well, uh, mulching—I
1: have to say, mulching is—it—it has been one of my hobby horses forever. Um, And basically, it's there's all sorts of mulching, but it is covering the soil, and it's essentially protecting the soil so that uh, you—the soil structure, which is the key to everything—is isn't damaged. And it, it does also. Um for anybody who's new to gardening and mulching is really just covering the soil with with something else, either an organic substance, you know, like like manure or something, or something inorganic like even plastic mulches. So so it primarily just protect the soil structure, but also to prevent weeds growing, because they won't grow if in the dark, and if you make it darker they they won't grow. Um and also to preserve moisture, which in so many parts of the world is a key factor, or to preserve and create warmth, you know, early in the year. I mean, in the old days, I suppose outside, we'd have, um, I'd have sown in in spring, I would perhaps use a plastic mulch um, on the soil just to warm the soil up a little bit, little earlier than it would have been otherwise. Um, In summer, I'd have mulched to preserve the moisture and keep down weeds. And then in winter, ideally using an organic mulch, I'd have mulched again just to preserve the structure and stop all the nutrients being washed out in winter. Uh, I think one of the key things about mulching, it's almost kind of like a saying, is it does maintain the status quo. So if you mulch... You should never marsh when the soil is miserable, you know, when it's really wet or really cold, because you're doing nobody any good. You just want to to catch it when there's nice moisture in it and and um, cover it then so you keep the moisture. Or when it's warm, cover it to, so it remains nice and warm. Um, I suppose ourselves, we've always used, um, used straw. I use straw an awful lot. Um, we've always lived in the country, so which means it's easy to get things like straw. Old straw is just wonderful. You know, I plead with everybody to give me the tail end of the haystacks. It just rots down into a lovely organic mulch and encourages worms, which is another really good reason for mulching. Because even under what look like nasty inorganic mulches, mats, and things, you find the worms multiply. They just Love, I don't know what they love about it, but all mulching seems to encourage worms, earthworms, the good guys. Um, but we use straw, and then um, here, here by the sea, of course, we have seaweed, which is um, just a wonderful mulch in, in so many ways. And in fact, for, for my 80th birthday, I said to people, I don't want any presents, just seaweed. And for ages, people were bringing me barrier loads of seaweed. It was absolutely wonderful. I had lush seaweed, for it lasted several years. And, and just occasionally I look out and somebody's brought me more bags of, of seaweed. Um, also, we used to use mushroom compost. We were near in Suffolk. We lived right beside what we call the mushroom factory. And the mushroom compost is sterile with Little lumps of chalk in it, but it's a wonderful mulching material as well. So we so we use that, and and I remember when we first had a place, we used to collect, collect bracken, and just use use that as a mulch, you know, in in the autumn. But if you you know if you live in the city or somewhere where it's hard to get to get organic material, um, garden compost, of course, although you may have to pull out a few weed seeds, but you know, just even putting, you have enough garden compost, of course that's a lot of work. Um, Lawn mowings, um, comfrey leaves, but with all these things, it's best to let them um, rot first. You know, if you put them on fresh, they go into a very solid, nasty layer, and it's it's ideally better permeable. So dry them off first. I, I mulch the greenhouse with comfrey leaves, which I dry off first and, and then mulch. Um Mushroom compost, again, which you probably can get even in urban areas. And the, the other thing is, that I've grown quite a lot of green manures, like particularly field beans, and then cut off the tops in spring and use that for, for a mulch as well. So, you know, you have to, um, there's a lot of trial and error, and um, sometimes, you're brought short by the error because I realised here that the uh, the store I was putting down so liberally in Suffolk, where I thought I had slugs, and was just making a duvet for slugs here, where I really do have slugs. So you have to modify your treatment, or or carefully look at them. If you're able to spot slug eggs, get rid of them. So you're balancing what you can do, and 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 if you haven't got the organic stuff, which obviously adds nutrients and eventually enables you to really do no dig because they all rot down and you really don't have to dig. But, um, you know, use the inorganic stuff, even, you know, layers of newspaper, cardboard. They can all play a a role in keeping down weeds and and just helping.
0: As you say, Joy, this summer proved just how important mulching uh, is and probably will be in the next few years because we have to protect... That soil, as you say, and the the baking sun that we experience just really, really hits the integrity and the nutrients in the soil,
1: doesn't it? It does. I mean, I, I can't believe it. I, I mean, years ago, I remember in, when we were having very hot summers in East Anglia, which we always have done, really. Um, garden's being open in a nearby village and, and not a garden was moused. And of course, the hose pipes were going madly. But... Um, it just seems to me the soil likes to be covered, you know. In in the natural world, leaves are falling down. You very barely see bare soil in in the natural world, and um, and things grow through it. On the whole, you know. I
0: think it's I think it's a great point. We often assume soil. I mean, Rachel spoke about it before. Soil is we would call it dirt, don't we? We don't give it enough value. But just like yeah. anything else, it's. Um, anything else that is a living thing like we are we would like to be in the shade when the sun is shining so i think we should probably probably see soil much more of a of a living organism that yeah. that just like humans would 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 like to be covered up when it's when it's sunny <laughs> yeah,
1: well, yeah. Um, when we had a, we had a huge polytunnel was known as hut back in suffolk and and in summer i would mulch the paths um just with straw any old straw and and then in winter we'd turn those paths in, and I would grow my winter crops on what had been the paths, and where the summer crops had been would become the path. But I was always amazed. I mean, that's how I first realised the amount of earthworm activity and the beautiful texture of the soil where the, where the um, straw had lain. And 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 so often the deeper the mulch, the better. You know, it's amazing how deeply you can mulch things. Um, it's it, the way the soil evaporates in hot weather you know you can have three or four inches of straw or leaves or something on top and um still being beneficial but of course you've got to wait till the plants are big enough otherwise you're get to um you know you can only mulch around big growing plants because the birds will come along and scratch it up and smother your little seedlings if if you do it too early
2: yeah that's all fascinating to hear joy and, and and completely inspiring and and as you say i know i look around uh, our allotment, and actually the majority of of uh, allotments there's no mulching whatsoever uh, so it's it's hear yeah. you talk about that and and you've inspired me i've been scouring the beaches of norfolk every time i go for a walk at the coast i take several <laughs> buckets and i filling up filling it up with seaweed We <laughs> don't have the <laughs> plentiful supply that you have of large kelp but I'm doing what I can but
1: yeah <laughs> so it's, it's it's great stuff oh yeah.
2: yes it's wonderful the uh, and it's so fascinating to hear you talk about how in the, the natural world yes it's you just don't see bare soil do you and and going back to that we touched on it earlier about climate change um going back to sort of talking about the bigger pictures around around gardening and the environment at the moment uh, you know, we know you're an active campaigner and very early advocate for organic gardening.
1: Really with climate change we're being faced with changing our lifestyles drastically and, and our gardening styles really, you know, we lawns have got to be probably on the way out, you know, um, water's going to be a, a, a real problem. So many things are are being changed that, um it's all pointing to becoming organic which is far more mainstream now than it than it was you know when when i was first writing about main about organic you know you were poo-pooed and the conferences were laughed at and so on it now has been absorbed on a far wider scale but but not entirely by any means you know there's a huge uproar on the commercial side about having to abandon peat and all that kind of thing you know it's a there's still loads of people to be convinced that um we're going to have to take a step back you know and um and adapt and going organic is a kind of blanket term for what's involved i think
2: yes and it's um just extraordinary how it is uh completely all encompass encompassing through the the food chain and right through i mean in Norwich, there's a campaign for people to have um, boxes for swifts, but but the insect life isn't there. The population has declined so sadly. Uh, you know, we need we need to be encouraging insects, and the, you know, that's all part of that. To organic gardening.
1: Yeah, we need to look at the fundamental causes and put them right. <clears throat> you know, rather than the the kind of biodiversity equivalent to building your houses on stilts so they won't get. You know, it's flooded, but uh, just trying to trying to put the pendulum back. It's going to be very difficult, obviously.
2: Mm. Do Do you see any signs of hope? I mean, I think you know, just just seeing more organic vegetables in in shops and, and perhaps more awareness generally. But it, we're still so far short of where we need to be. I suppose.
1: Yeah, I find it, to be completely honest, it's very hard because you you tend to meet and talk with people who think the same way as you do. And so you realise these are people who are, you know, are switching off the lights and so on. And then you go into the other world, the outer world, and you realise there are still loads of people who think this is a load of rubbish and why, you know, don't take it seriously. And, you know, you can hide, you can get into a little bubble and and. and and try and put it on one side, but it's um I, I do, I, to be honest I'm very depressed by it yeah
2: it is difficult it is difficult to to be optimistic we because it's a question that for me that has to run through all our lives all, all the time the amount of waste we produce, the amount of consumption necessary I completely agree and for me that's that's all part of respecting nature but and respecting the planet and Caring about uh, gardening is just just. I've been amazed how gardening and having allotment has made me much more alert to these things. And
1: so. yeah, yeah, you're close. And um, it's not so much you know someone of my age, but but you you fear for what future generations will have to cope with, and and the terrible conditions already in countries like Africa and the floods in Pakistan and so on. The, uh, there are loads of people already who are affected by it, you know, and we worry about you know having the the right kind of whatever our favorite food is you know (laughs) but but growing things is a huge antidote as well (laughs) it's it's a solution and an antidote it
2: is it is and 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 reconnects you with with well for me it reconnects you with nature and the importance of nature yes and it's, it's yeah that is the positive side yes yes joy if
0: i could just change tack a little bit i was um thinking the other day in fact i was reading the other day your just vegetating book and it had the um your, your top 10 gardening new year's resolutions and i think you wrote that in the 70s and it was just fantastic it, it was <laughs> uh, actually um uh, peter rachel and i are going to record a podcast hopefully in the next couple of weeks where we're going to discuss our own gardening New Year's resolutions one of mine is is to save seeds and I've never really done it and lots of people I speak to say oh it's quite straightforward um but I don't know why but I feel it's quite a daunting idea um can you tell me that it's easy to do because it is could anyway save me and people listening quite a bit of money, couldn't it?
1: Yeah. Well, I, I think again, it's a very, it's a very complex um, question, and it depends what you're talking about. Um, I mean, over here in in Ireland, since Brexit, it's become so many of the UK seed firms which I've used all my life are no longer sending here. It's become too complicated. So the incentive for saving up our own seed has become become huge. You really need f- to get really good quality seed. There's such a difference between lousy seed and good seed. And for good seed, you you really need, when the seed is naturally maturing, a, a long period of lovely dry weather. And um, the, which is why so many of the UK seed firms started in Essex, because that's where in the old days, and I was talking about quite a long time ago, so many of the seeds um, were were raised because it was the best bet for getting um, decent decent seed. And in practice, even going back um, probably a hundred years or so, a lot of our UK seed came from the continent. In places like Italy, um, Hungary have always been great areas where they had reliable summers and therefore seed could mature well. And that somewhere like Ireland, our climate is the kiss of death for seed, really. There's continual dampness, the high humidity. You know, things like my apples don't store anything like they ever did in Suffolk, that kind of thing. So you're really limited to what you can save well. And, and what we found on our travels was the, the kind of seeds that were being saved when we travelled on the continent were things that naturally the seed, you could have the seed-bearing stage in spring, so it had a nice summer ahead of it to dry. You know, Things like salad rock, it could come through the winter, the cresses, winter endives. Those sort of things were relatively easy for peasants to save, and therefore they did, you know, the the things that that had seed heads early in spring. what I, what we did, what I've done myself, is to try and save, to concentrate on um, either things that are very hard to get hold of or things that I use loads of. Like, Saladocchio is a great example because um, I don't know if any English seedsmen are listening to seedsmen or seedswomen are listening to your podcast, Zoom. But um, the... The amount of seed you get in the normal UK packet is tiddlywinks compared to what you would get in a big Italian packet, because they know that people sow thickly cut and come with crops and they give you a nice bulky seed packet. So for years I've been saving rocket seed, because you know it, it runs the seed easily, it sells seeds quite easily. But I would I would pull up a plant, um, hang it against the greenhouse wall or house wall, and sometimes Literally, sow from it. Just crumble the seed pods out of it into my drill or something. Not even bother to put them in a packet because you know they they did they matured in summer and they were nice and dry and, and that was possible. Um, there are snags like you can't um, you know if you, you can't save from hybrid varieties F1 hybrids because they won't come true. <laughs> Um, and you know, there's always a temptation for people to save from the plants that have run to seed quickly because they think, oh, there's a seed, I'll take it. Those are the ones you don't want to save from because you don't want things that run to seed quickly on the whole. You, you want things that where you can get the kind of nice, early, big, fat seeds like broad beans. It's quite easy to say, save your own broad beans. And, and that's a good one to start with. Um I hope it's still around. Sue Sue Stickland, you know, who was the first um, head gardener at the organic gardening, at uh, the Henry Doubleday one. Now she's written a book. I think it's called Backyard Seed Saving, and um, I think that's a really a really good guide to what's practical to try and do yourself, because it's so disappointing if you save seed and then it doesn't germinate. I'll tell you what I have been saving this year. I've been trying a few more things, you know, partly because of Brexit, but one of them is the um, open pollinated peppers. They're actually quite an easy one to seed to save your own. Tomatoes, if they're not hybrid, is not too difficult. Um, I've been saving the plant called February orchid. Its proper name is Orichophragmus, which is basically an ancient weed that flowers in February and um, self-seeds very easily. Uh, so that's another one, and I save texel texel greens, which is the kind of, is an unusual one, but easy to save but but on the whole, I grow them in the greenhouse for savings, so and they don't you know they tend to be drier and uh one of the problems is that um if you're saving the seeds the plant is around for much longer because you've got to wait for it to mature you know the peas and beans well peas and beans on the whole. Are quite easy to say but it means you've got to leave the plant to dry and um my husband used to get furious with me because I had plants of the february orchid all over the place and um you know he wanted them out of the way but um you just hang on and hang on until the pods are really crunchy and you know split open naturally and that's the point where you want to put them straight into a little paper bag and somewhere cool and dry because so that's that's another thing that seeds should be kept.
0: oh thank you Joe. i've written written down the name of that book as well because um what was like a an excuse to buy a gardening book that's brilliant thank you and peter i wonder if you want to ask one more question before we before we wrap up do you want to do the one that rachel wrote down
1: hints for the new gardeners
2: perfect way to end as well
1: okay well we'll end on hints for the new gardeners shall we well, my first two hints for new gardeners pro- probably sound silly. Um, the first one is keep records because you just probably when you if you're starting young, you remember everything. There'll come a point where you don't. But the, every garden is unique. And the things that do well for you when you sow them. I just look at my records again and again. That's one. The second one is make sure you grow what the household wants. I'm appalled at how often the gardener slaves away and and the produce is ignored by the household. So find out, make sure you grow what they want and then they'll love you all the more for it. But I think one of the keys is to grasp the whole idea of um, succession, that to avoid gluts and and avoid um, the opposite of a glut. And I think kind of training yourself to sow a little and often, and, and maybe the clue is when something appears, when it comes through the soil or you plant it out, so that's when to sow the next lot. Things that are relatively fast growing, like lettuce, radishes, spinach, beetroot, spring onions, cut and come again, seedlings and so on. Just when you, just spotting the first lot germinating or coming through that's when you should start get the next lot ready so that you so that you keep the pot boiling i think that's a very useful concept to grasp as soon as you can so that's i hope that helps
2: <laughs> oh that's that's wonderful that's wonderful joy and uh you may be pleased to hear uh because i keep records but not very well so i've just bought if you could see this this is a, a journal diary, and I'm determined to keep very good records this year. Because <laughs> when I do, they're valuable. So thank you. That's one of my New Year's resolutions,
1: and not to keep them on the computer because computer programs get obsolete. But but I I've, I've been tracing back my old photos. And That's what I meant to say. That a lot of my stuff is going to the Garden Museum archive. I said we meant to ask my favourite tool, which is a funny little hoe made out of an old saw, which I got in China years ago, and which was sent to the Garden Museum archive just two days ago. <coughs> and um, a lot of my old records and stuff will be at some point in the in the Garden Museum archive. They've got an archive of um, UK gardeners, photographers, garden designers, and uh, one or two people who grow vegetables.
0: So just just very quickly with that, Joy, you've been working on that recently, haven't you? So you're preparing an exhibition, are you, or you're entering, or you're you're giving no, it's, in? It's not
1: an um, exhibition as such. It's just that they they have funds for a, um, a gardening arch- an archive of British gardening, and my stuff is going there. And um, I've been sorting through actually forty years of photos on the Orientals section of it of, of my archive to accompany the material you know about the trips we did and so on you know so let's hope it will be available it still has to be cataloged but it's kind of there for hopefully future generations
0: that's fantastic and and where could the layperson find that is it online or is it is it where is the museum
1: They still i mean it's still in, in its early stages but the garden museum and lambeth palace in the uk will, will um Give you information about the garden museum. I, we did actually launch just vegetating there quite a few years ago now.
0: Brilliant, Peter. I think we we'll have to have a spring visit down there. We must.
1: Oh, oh, oh they're doing all sorts of interesting things, and they're doing a lot about community gardens in the area at the moment.
0: Oh uh, we should we should do that.
1: Yeah, you'd um. there's there's a lot going on there. The archives are a really very small part of it. Yeah.
0: Well, Joy, we've only got we've only got a minute left, and uh, I don't want to get I don't want to get cut off without saying a huge thank you, and just how much of a pleasure it has been getting to know you over the past six, eight weeks or so. I've I've really enjoyed uh, our conversations on here, but also the the small phone conversations we've had. Although, please don't ask uh, tell my wife yeah. um, about the phone bill to Ireland. <laughs>
1: I keep worrying about about your. <laughs> it's all right. You haven't given me a, your wife's contact, so you're quite. She hasn't.
0: She hasn't. She hasn't asked yet. So I'm hope, hoping it won't come up. But, um, no, it's it's just been wonderful, and, and maybe it'd be great if we could do another one of these in 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 the new year, maybe towards the summer, because it'd be fantastic to chat again.
1: Yeah. Well, thanks. Thanks for all the tra- all the work you put into it, and and good luck with your allotment. I mean, they're they're amazing places.